Hi, listeners. This is the 80,000 Hours Podcast, where each week we have an unusually in-depth conversation about one of the world's most pressing problems and how you can use your career to solve it. I'm Rob Wiblin, Director of Research at 80,000 Hours. Today, I'm delighted to bring you a conversation between Arden Kaler and our CEO, Ben Todd. Ben's been doing a bunch of independent research recently, and we thought it would be interesting to hear how he's currently thinking about a couple of different topics. This is all very off the cuff compared to our regular episodes, and even though he is our CEO, the things Ben says here aren't official 80,000 hours positions or anything like that. This episode is just 54 minutes long, a conversation so short I'm sure regular listeners will barely be able to believe it, uh, and it's split into two different sections. In the first, Ben and Arden talk about four different flavors of long-termism and their distinctive implications for people trying to do good with their careers. In the second part, they move on to things that 80,000 hours might be getting wrong, including how much weight to put on personal fit uh, and, and whether we might be highlighting the wrong problems and career paths. Given that we're in the same office, it's relatively easy to record conversations between 80,000 hours team members. So if you enjoy these types of bonus episodes, do let us know by emailing us at podcast at 80,000 hours.org, and we might make them a bit more of a regular feature. Just before that, though, I wanted to let you know that our annual user survey is now open for submissions. Once a year for two weeks, we ask all of you, our podcast listeners, uh, article readers, advice receivers, and so on, to let us know how our work has helped or hurt you. You can find that survey at 80,000hours.org slash survey. 80,000 Hours now offers a whole lot of different services, and your feedback helps us figure out which programs to keep, uh, which to cut, and which to expand. The survey is pretty different this year, and among other changes, there's a new section covering the podcast, asking what kinds of episodes you liked the most and want to see more of, uh, what extra resources that we produce you actually use, uh, and some other questions as well. We're always especially interested to hear ways that our work has influenced what you plan to do with your life or career, whether that impact was positive, uh, neutral, or negative. That might mean a different focus in your existing job, or a decision to study something different, or maybe a choice to look for a completely new job. Alternatively, maybe you're now planning to volunteer somewhere, or donate more, or donate to a different organization than you would have otherwise. Every entry you write will be lovingly attended to by a team of expert survey readers from the Nepalese highlands, who will inscribe each submission in beautiful calligraphy, sing out what you've written from a cliff jutting out of the Himalayan mountains, and then ceremonially burn the paper in an ancient user-feedback-related ritual. Then, totally independently of that, they'll be carefully read by me and my colleagues as part of our upcoming annual review, and we'll decide on some things that 80,000 hours should focus on or do differently next year. So please do take a moment to fill out the user survey. Those who do so will have forever won my love. You can find it at 80,000hours.org slash survey. All right, without further ado, I bring you Arden and Ben. Hi, listeners. I'm Arden. I'm a researcher at 80,000 Hours. Hi, and I'm Ben, the CEO and co-founder of 80,000 Hours. And in this episode, I'm going to pick Ben's brain about his recent research. So, Ben, you've been doing a bunch of research recently for 80,000 Hours, and I know a little bit about what you've been thinking about, but just for the audience... What are the topics you've been thinking about and what are some ideas you've had? Well, there's a bunch which I'm going to hope to write about soon on the website. But one I've been particularly interested in recently is what are the different types of long-termism and what do they imply about which careers seem highest impact? And then what might that mean for what our advice should be? So we've talked about long-termism on the show already, but for anyone who hasn't heard of it, do you want to just say briefly what that is? Yeah, so just very, very roughly, it's the idea that what most matters about our actions is their very long-term effects. And by that, I don't just mean like effects over a couple of decades, which is often what people mean when they talk about long-term thinking, but we really mean maybe over thousands or even millions of years. And so 
roughly, if you were going to say, well, how high impact is this action? You should be thinking about the question, what might its very long-term effects be? And that would be like the key thing to focus on. Okay, so what are these different varieties of long-termism? Yeah, so pretty much all the researchers who focus on long-termism agree that we should focus on what's been what's sometimes called path changes rather than speed-ups. So you can think of a speed-up as just getting us to where we're going to go in the long-term faster, whereas a path change is something which changes how the long-term is going to be proportionally. So an existential risk is an example of a path change because in that scenario, if an existential risk happens, then the value of the future is much lower for the rest of the rest of civilization's history. So an existential risk, I think Toby Ord defines it like actually as something that just makes the rest of the future much lower in value. So that could be not existing, whereas we might have existed otherwise, or I guess it could also just be in a really bad state for a very long time, as opposed to a, a neutral or good state. Yes, exactly. Whereas like a speed up might be making an important discovery like a bit earlier than it would have been made otherwise. And that's like getting us faster progress, but not necessarily changing like where things end up in the long term. So why is faster progress good at all? Well, it means if there's like, if the future is going to be better, then you're like getting there sooner. So you're spending longer at that good state, just okay. very simply speaking. Yeah, there's, so the, the best kind of treatment of speed ups versus path changes is in Nick Beckstead's thesis, which we linked to from our article on long-termism. But anyway, that's not the main topic I want to talk about. Okay. So like, assuming that it's these path changes or what I called on the last, my last podcast, Hinges, is the key thing to focus on. We can then divide up different types of long-termism by which hinges they think are most important. Okay, so if you take this long-termist perspective, basically you're trying to find key moments when what we do today can make a, a difference to what happens in the very long term. So like maybe like most things we do probably don't really have very long-term effects or at least not ones that we know. They just kind of, things just get muddled and washed out. But maybe there's some moments where what we do like does have these ongoing effects or like makes the difference between one way the world could have gone and another way the world could have gone. And so, yeah, we're trying to find these influential moments. And then there's like different types of long-termists kind of want to focus on different types of influential moment, or they have different views of like what those are. And so, yeah, broadly we can, yeah, we can categorize the different influential moments in a couple of different ways. So one would be whether we think the influential moments, the key ones are going to happen, say, over the course of our careers in the next couple of decades, or are they going to happen beyond that period, like further in the future? And the more you think these influential moments are going to come later, the more you want to focus on a type of long-termism, which is called patient long-termism. And then like, otherwise you're going to want to like focus on addressing these moments that are coming up in the next couple of decades. So this is related to the conversation we had with Will on the podcast about the hinge of history, right? Will was suggesting exactly. maybe the hinge of history or where that means, I guess, the a cluster of really influential moments or maybe just one is far in the future. We should expect it to be, whereas other people think it's maybe in the next few decades or, or the next century would still be considered less patient than, yes. than some other varieties. Yeah. And so um, Toby Yord's recent book, which we and Toby, we had on the podcast, he in his book, he's kind of arguing, he's actually arguing the next couple of centuries is the time of perils. So that's like an unusually hingy moment, or I guess, well, he's arguing the next couple of centuries is the precipice. Uh, sorry, right. rather than the time of perils, that, that's Parfit's <laughs> term. Though I think he may also think the, couple, the next couple of decades are like even unusually important. So Toby would be slightly more on the we need to act now spectrum, whereas Will was pushing a bit more into the patient end of the spectrum. So like one example of 
one example of a moment that would be like extremely influential, I guess, is like if you think that catastrophic biological risks are an existential risk and you are like present existential risks and you're in charge of some sort of bioweapons program or whatever, there could be a moment even in the next few decades in your career that you might be able to act in such a way that it actually prevents this existential risk from materializing, which would make a huge difference to the the entire future of humanity. Yeah. So in Will's post, he introduces three things that can make a moment influential. One is like all this terminology is super not decided but and often quite bad. But one is the degree of pivotality. Pivotality. Oh, my gosh. Um, <laughs> um, okay. So that's kind of just like how much scope do we actually have to change, like, what happens? And so an example of something that could make a time really pivotal is if we discover a new technology, such as, like, something that could create a new bioweapon, that that moment, right, right as we're disco- about to discover that, that would be a really pivotal time because maybe maybe the details of how that technology is handled could make a big difference to whether there's an existential risk or some other shift to the future. Okay, what are the other two? Didn't you say there were three ways, three yes. sorts of properties that could make something uh, So then the, the second one is how much ability we have to do anything about it because the time could be very pivotal, but maybe we can't actually change what happens. So it's like, there's a really important event, but it's not influenceable. And then the third one is whether we know what those things are. So like, again, there might be these amazing opportunities around. So you might have the first two things satisfied, but if we can't identify them, then it would also not be uh, influential time in Will's definition. Okay. So patient long-termists think that events or times or combinations of events and, you know, the state of humanity at that time where we're actually going to be able to make a huge difference because of these three properties holding is probably not going to happen for an extremely long time. Is that the idea? Yes. Or just now is not a special time. Like maybe it's just as influential as other other times that will come up in the next few hundred years. Okay. That's a really helpful clarification. So you could think that right now is in some sense a, you know, there's lots of existential risks right now. But if you thought that there was going to be even more existential risk in a couple hundred years or a thousand years or the same amount, you might still be a patient long-termist. Yes. Or you might think that will understand them better in the future. And so we'll be better able to deal with them. Okay. So that's patient long-termism and impatient long-termism. Does that have a name? (laughs) um, Urgent long-termism. Urgent long-termism. That seems better. But then urgent long-termism then divides into several other forms. So we'll set patient long-termism aside and then just focus on the types of urgent long-termists. Okay. So then the next key question is, so we've now decided that there are these important influential moments in the next few decades. The next key question is, do we actually know what they are? And so you might think now is it an unusually important time, but we're very unsure about what are the particular influential things. And so that that type of long-termism I call broad long-termism. And so, yeah, this is like a slightly odd position, but you can kind of almost see Toby in his book is like going towards this position. If, if you put AI to one side, I think he actually thinks, I think it's either the second or third biggest existential risk is from an unknown risk. And so he's relatively on the urgent end of the spectrum, but he also thinks there's quite a good chance that we don't actually know what the key thing is. Okay. So one thing that feels a little confusing here is that you said before that the something that makes something an influential moment is that we have enough hmm. knowledge to be able to like, you know, act in these way or take these opportunities. So I guess I'm thinking 
if you thought we didn't have knowledge of what the what the opportunities were, then you should be a patient long-termist, even if you think there are those opportunities in the near future. So how, how can somebody be a broad long-termist, but also an urgent one? Well, you could think now is a pivotal time and we might be able to do something about it. You don't have the you don't have the third one, the knowledge, but that could still, those first two could still be enough to make you quite urgent. Okay. But yeah, so yeah, but you're still, I agree that the knowledge thing is pushing you maybe towards patience, but maybe the other two factors could outweigh. I guess you could also think we don't in fact know right now what the influential moments are, but you could think, well, when they come up, we might be able to recognize them. So as long as we have people standing guard over the next in the next hundred years or something, yes. they'll be recognizable when they come up, even if we can't tell what they are now. Yes, though that sounds a bit more like patient long-termism. Though, uh, yeah, I mean, maybe it's worth saying like all of these things are a spectrum. So like with broad long-termism, what people then tend to focus on is, so suppose one type of broad long-termism is like, you believe that now is an unusually risky time in terms of accidental risk, but you're not sure what the biggest risks are then what you can do about that is you can focus on reducing risk factors. So just things that generally increase existential risk rather than trying to reduce specific risks. Okay. And that's things like trying to increase international cooperation or something. Seems sort of like robustly good for lots of different things. Yes. I think Toby mentions great power conflict in the book as potentially an important risk factor because it seems like many existential risks can be prevented if people can coordinate and work together. And it seems like one of the most likely ways that coordination isn't possible is because there's a a war between important powers. So if we knew there was going to be no great power conflict, then we should probably think existential risk is would also be a bunch lower over the next over the rest of our careers. So that's broad long termism. And then I guess the opposite would be narrow long termism, or the not the opposite, but you know the Yes, though I've been calling that targeted long termism. Targeted long termism. Yeah, so that would be the idea that it's um, acting is urgent and we know what the key influential moments are. Right. And that gets us on to, we can then divide targeted long-termism into two types again. One where it's um, we should focus on existential risks as the main thing. And then the other is we should focus on some other type of path change. Okay. And those are like two broad types of influential moment is an existential risk or a path change. Can we also divide broad long-termism into the existential risk-focused broad long-termism and other kind of path change-focused type? Well, I, so I've, de- I've defined broad long-termism as like, we don't know what the influential moments are, so it kind of could be any of those. I see. Yeah. Okay. So what's an example of another kind of path change that's not an existential risk? P- yeah. Path change moment. Of the four positions, that one's probably the least popular. But the thing that actually seems to be most supported within that would be an, 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 another AI-focused long-termism. But some people think that the biggest reason to focus on AI is not because an AI disaster could be an existential risk, but rather because exactly how AI is designed might have some other kind of very long-term effect. Like it might lock in a certain set of values or just kind of change how civilization is and like for a very long time. And it might just change that in like a proportional way rather than a kind of all or nothing way. So like how we deal with AI could make the difference between having like an okay future and an awesome future. Yeah, or maybe you could even just think it might be possible that if it's handled in one way, you get like 80% of the value. And if you handle it slightly worse, you get 79% of the value. And maybe there's just like a whole load of gradations of how well it's handled overall. Okay. Cool. So we have, is that four types then of long-termism? Yes. Okay. Can I ask you which one you're most sympathetic to? 
or I don't know if we should recap the types, but we've got patient long-termism, then we've got urgent broad long-termism, urgent targeted long-termism, and then that, well, then that divides into existential risk-focused long-termism and path change or trajectory change-focused long-termism. Okay. Actually, <laughs> let me just, just because taxonomies are fun, let me ask, like, so can patient long-termism be divided into broad and narrow? Like, could you think... Well, the like influential moments won't be for a really long time, but we're pretty confident that they're going to be coming from like brand new. Okay. Now maybe this is like super. Yeah, no, I think it's, (laughs) I think it's not super plausible, but you could imagine that there will be a further spectrum in there about how much knowledge we have about what these influential moments are going to be. Okay. And that could influence exactly what type of capacity building you want to do as a patient long-termist. Okay. But like, usually it's going to be more plausible to be sort of a broad patient long-termist. You know, if it's not going to be for a long time, probably we don't have a great idea of what... Yeah, I guess I... So I'm not keen on that terminology because I think the most common way people confuse these different types of long-termism is between broad versus patient. Okay. So they actually have pretty different implications because broad long-termists think... So, sorry, I've defined broad long-termists as like urgent-focused ones. So they want us to do stuff which immediately reduces existential risks or otherwise helps society better navigate whatever the influential moment is going to be in the next few decades. Whereas instead, patient long-termists generally want to build capacity to empower future altruists to take on these influential moments when they come up. Yeah, they could also, both both of them will be keen on global priorities research. Probably the patient long-termists are going to be more keen on it because well, actually, that's kind of not, that's not clear, but... Maybe yeah. research takes a long time to have... Yes, if, you, if you're like, returns. yeah, if you're like super urgent focused, then it's going to kind of stop becoming attractive to do research because that, yeah, because it's quite a long-term investment. Okay, so now <laughs> that you've put off the question of which one you are most sympathetic to... Yeah. Um, do you have a sense? Well, so I guess for me, it'd be mainly between existential risk-focused long-termism and patient long-termism. But then I and then I put like a little bit of credence on the trajectory change one and the broad one. So actually, overall, I'm a bit more focused on the urgent long termism than patient long termism. But yeah, like still, patient long termism would be my like second view out of the out of the four. And is that because you're you think the arguments that Will was making seem somewhat persuasive, but you're not sure? Yeah, and I mean, also Phil Trammell's arguments for waiting seem pretty powerful in some ways. Yeah. So we had Phil Trammell on the podcast, but just to like very briefly say that was more focused on like how much we're going to have power to affect these moments. Like Phil pointed out that if we sort of invest resources now to grow them, meaning financial, but also other kinds of resources, we could have a lot more influence in the future, which would sort of push you toward patient long-termism. Yeah. I mean, I think also like our understanding improving over time seems fairly convincing. And then it kind of also seems like if you're uncertain between the two views, the patient one maybe keeps your options open more, though. Interesting. I would have thought, I mean, I feel like the intuitive thing is if you're uncertain between patient and urgent, you should go for the urgent one because it seems the, like a bigger mistake or something to like. Yeah, I guess I, I guess you're right. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty unsure about which way that goes. Okay. But yeah, obviously, if there's like an accidental risk now and we could have prevented it, then that's kind of like the ultimate loss of option value. I suppose that there are other arguments where uncertainty puts you in favor of. So there's like, Phil, I think, talks about Weizmann's arguments about discount rates, where if you're uncertain about what the discount rate should be, generally, that will push you towards using like lower ones over time. Interesting. I don't remember why that was. Is it easy to explain? Not super easy, but if you well, I don't know how many people will know what a discount rate is. But yeah, if you imagine like 
okay, so either we have a high discount rate, which means like things in the future are like not very important compared to things now, or we have a low discount rate, which means things in the future are very important compared to now. If you kind of imagine taking the average of those two, you end up with things in the future being pretty important. And then if you kind of do this more mathematically, it actually ends up that you should over, like as you get further and further in the future, your expectation value for the discount rate should tend towards the lowest conceivable value for the discount rate. Interesting. Yeah, I don't feel like I follow that last step, but we'll just link in the show notes to where <laughs> Phil explained this, you said? Yeah, I think so. But it's a it's a famous paper by um, Weizmann, an, an economist. Who, okay, yeah. we'll link to that in the show notes too. Okay, so those are the four varieties of long-termism. So what what's the implication of these distinctions for what 80,000 hours should be doing as an organization to help people do good with their careers? Yeah, so all the different long-termists basically agree that we should want some of all of these kinds of things. And so there should be some kind of portfolio of effort across them. And where people are more differing is just like in exactly like how much effort it would be ideal to go into each one. And so and like we would take a similar approach in our advice. And like among our users, we think it would be cool if people were like pursuing all of these different different types of long-termism. Yeah. So can you yeah. say more about what it means to pursue the different types of long-termism? Yeah. So like given each type of long-termism, you can then think about what priorities that would imply about cause selection and career capital and um, movement building. Like those are the main differences. So yeah, I guess to give to give an example, like the thing we like have most clear on our key ideas page is the accenture risk focused long-termism. And so there we think we want people basically focusing on reducing the accenture risks that are biggest, most neglected and like most solvable. And so there we've tended to focus on AI safety, bio risks, nuclear security and climate tail risks as the four key things to work on. So if you were a patient long-termist or you thought that, in fact, other kinds of path changes were more available to us, then you might focus on other priorities than the things we emphasize the most. Yeah, so the the accenture risk-focused long-termist would focus on reducing those risks I just mentioned. They would also want to reduce risk factors as well. But then if you're a patient long-termist, well, in practice, patient long-termists would agree we would want still to invest a little bit in those things, but mostly we'd want to be building capacity to help people in the future do more good. And so then that would tend to come down to some kind of movement building, because that seems to be one of the best ways to get there to be more people caring about these things in the future. And this is EA movement or effective altruism movement building in particular, or yeah, it could is it be, supposed to be broader? Yeah, it could be any type of movement building that gets people interested in whatever the long-termist priorities will be in the future. Okay. <laughs> um, in a, yeah. very, a very abstract level. But yeah, effective altruism movement building seems to, is like one that seems to be working. But yeah, I, I would wonder in the future whether we might want something like a movement concerned with political representation of future generations. And that that could be like another independent movement that might be really good from a long-termist perspective. Although actually, I mean, it sort of strikes me that if I'm a patient long-termist, then shouldn't I think that a movement built around increasing representation for future generations is like not going to be focused on grabbing the grabbing the influential moments when they come up. Don't I want a movement of people who are kind of like scanning around all the time and looking for those influential moments and then grabbing them and acting when they come about? Yes, that would that's kind of I, ideally what you want. But then you could imagine something like that broader thing might just get lots of people interested in the narrower thing. So patient long-termists might be focused on movement building. Yeah, there's actually, we just released a blog post actually, which has a quick summary of the types of things patient long-termists want to focus on. But another bigger one would be global priorities research to try and figure out what those influential moments are going to be. Yeah, and so another thing is patient long-termists would be more keen on people investing in their career capital. 
So yeah, by career capital, we mean skills, connections, reputation, credentials that put you in a better position to make an impact in the long term. So it's kind of like how much you've invested in building your skills and abilities. Yeah. And so patient long-termists, well, all the different views will want people to focus on gaining career capital to some degree, unless you're like very, very urgent focused. So if you think the key influential moment is coming like next year, then it would be no point doing a PhD now. You should just like do whatever you can do to help. But if you think it's coming over like a few decades, you probably would want to get some career capital if it can pay off within those few decades. But then, yeah, patient long-termists would be like the most keen on career capital because they're really happy to like wait for as long as needed to have more impact. So one thing that feels a little confusing about that to me is the career capital question is like, okay, what should I do for the next couple decades? Whereas the thing that patient and urgent long-termists disagree on is how important is the next like couple centuries or even millennia? So like how much do they really differ on this question of career capital? Yeah, so I think it's like maybe a bit less than might first seem. But some of the more urgent focused long-termists do really think the next like one or two decades is pretty unusually important. And so that it effectively makes your discount rate a few percent higher, probably. And so that kind of increases the hurdle rates for getting career capital a little bit. And so, yeah, it wouldn't make a huge difference. But if someone was like on the fence about, should I do a master's, should I do a PhD or some other like thing they think won't have any impact, but will get them some extra career capital, it could make the difference at marginal cases and patient people would like default towards the career capital. And so- It seems like if you thought the most influential moment or moments were going to be sort of coming around the end of the century, it seems like you'd still count as an urgent long-termist. I mean, obviously there are gradations, but like you're closer to like the urgent long-termist than the patient long-termist, but you might still have the same view on career capital as the patient long-termist. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So another way of seeing how urgent or patient to be is in terms of like what fraction of our resources we'd ideally give each year. And so this is easiest to see with money. So you can imagine like, while we have a pot of money, how much should you spend each year? On like doing doing good. good. Yeah. Yeah. So if you think the next hundred years is unusually influential, roughly you'll want to spread out your money over that hundred year period. And so that will, well, in Phil's model, that would mean that you would give like a couple of percent a year, something like that. And then that's like not actually a very different answer compared to a patient long-termist. The patient long-termist would maybe give like a percent less. And that's because like for the urgent person, well, they're still spreading out over a hundred years. So it's still like very spread out. But w- if you were an urgent long-termist who thought like the next decade is unusually influential, then in Phil's model, you would start giving something more like 10% a year. And then, so that would be, then be like a really big difference. So it's, yeah, it's only once you get to these really short timelines that it really starts to make a big difference to like how much we should be giving now versus investing. And then the same with how much we should be investing in career capital but rather than just trying to do the best we can right now. And just to clarify, when we talk about spending resources or giving resources, we mean on things besides things like movement building, right? That don't really count as investments of any kind. I categorize movement building as an investment. Right. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. So like you could spend, you know, 50% of your resources by, you know, funding programs, but if they're mostly focused on things like movement building, that wouldn't count as spending 50% of your resources on this model. It's how much is going on object level things. Yeah. So just to like make this really concrete, if, you know, a listener is hearing this and saying, yeah, you know, I was like really convinced by some of the arguments that I'd heard before for patient long-termism, what, you know, should they maybe do differently because of that? Yeah. So kind of career options for patient long-termists, perhaps the best, well, one of the best things is like any type of movement building that would pay off from that perspective. Second thing would be anything that helps with global priorities research. 
And then a kind of third category is earning to save. So basically earning to give, but then you would like put the money into some kind of foundation or donor advice fund and try and invest that and have more money in the future to give. And there's like different, you can pursue that to more or less degrees. Like one could just be like, you try and give like donate it all at the end of your life. Or another could be like, you try and put it in some kind of trust that will donate it like after you die. And then like fourth category is you could get any career capital that will help with those three priorities. So then that would be like career capital that helps you do global properties research or that does movement building or that helps you do earning to save. So that would be like something that puts you into a position to make a lot of money. Yes. In that last category. Yes. And I think this is um, another thing I think people sometimes mix up is they think that patient long-termists should be keen on really transferable career capital. And so you can kind of divide career capital into specialist and transferable. Specialist is like career capital that's useful for just like a narrow range of paths. And then transferable is like useful in many different careers. Patient long-termists, I used to kind of think as well that they should probably focus on transferable career capital because they're not sure what the key moments are. But actually they should focus on getting career capital that helps with those those three priorities, but it could be specialist career capital. The people who might be more tempted to focus on transferable career capital would be the broad long-termists because they might take a strategy of just doing something transferable and then like trying to spot that key influential moment that will come up over their lifetime and like work on that. Although I guess you could also think if you're a broad long-termist, maybe you should focus on like international relations. I know you keep keep using this example, but like you could like yes. get really narrow career capital for working to like help reduce the chance of great power conflict. Yeah, totally. So I think even in the broad long-termist case, there's a could be a strong case for focusing on specialist career capital where you would bet on some kind of broad intervention that you thought would help with many different potential risks or other types of influential moments for the for the long-term future. Okay, so I want to move on here pretty soon to talk about your views on career capital and other research topics. But before we do that, is there anything else you want to say about the varieties of long-termism? Yeah, I mean, one interesting question is what are the biggest priorities within those four things right now and like where the gaps are? And yeah, I tried to think a bit about are we getting the patience versus urgency trade-off right across the community and among our readers? And I actually think that's like, pretty unclear because effectively we are saving a lot of resources for the future which is like because lots lots of our users are young so they're investing in career capital and you know open philanthropy is like saving lots of their money and open philanthropy is one of is our biggest funder and it's like the biggest kind of effective altruism aligned foundation and so yeah i mean i think maybe we neglect the patient perspective a little bit but overall it's pretty unclear yeah and then within the kind of more urgent forms of long-termism what might be being neglected And I think like most effort is going into the existential risk focused one. And I think that makes sense. But I think there's currently maybe a bit of a gap in the broad focused long-termism. And um, yeah, one one reason for that is like, it it seems like, you know, most people don't think that should be our biggest priority, but lots of long-termist people think maybe it would be reasonable to say like, put like 10% of our resources into that. But it seems like currently it's much less than a couple of percent of people or like money being spent on those style of things. And that's within the effective altruism community. Yes. So, I mean, what if somebody said, okay, but in fact, the broad long-termist interventions are the things that most people outside of the effective altruism community focus on, or like, sorry, not most people, but like, you know, a greater number of people. So that's things like maybe increasing economic growth or trying to reduce the chance of conflict, which seem a bit less weird and neglected than like yeah, I wouldn't. The things. Yeah, I wouldn't. I, I, the economic growth question is 
how that fits in is a bit of a complicated oh, one. Oh, okay. In some ways, economic growth is a speed up. So it's not even one of these four varieties of long-termism. But then in practice, some people think, well, if we had more economic growth, maybe we'd get through the time of perils faster. And so it's reducing existential risk. I guess I was also thinking yeah. we just have better tools and better education or something like that at the point when something happens. So maybe we're like a bit robustly better at dealing with it. Yes, but then and then you have to set that against if we have more technology, then maybe we have like more risks in mm. some ways as well. Mm-hmm. So then, okay. and then you have to kind of quantitatively model the two two different effects. And so there's this paper by Leopold that I guess we've mentioned before on the podcast where he tries to make a quantitative model of those and he ends up concluding economic growth is like, overall probably going to be positive for reducing existential risk and so that then could be a thing that like more urgent long-termists would want but maybe probably not as that top priority because it doesn't seem like the very most leveraged way to reduce existential risk okay so okay well putting economic growth aside then yeah something like great power conflict would be a way of reducing risk factors and seems like not especially neglected again this is like maybe not like super super neglected but we've had a previous episode with glenn whale about how might we design institutions to provide global public goods better? And being able to do that would probably reduce lots of other existential risks. So it's an example of a risk-reducing thing. If you might be interested in some of these broader long-termist things, then uh, many of the things we cover on our new list of other problems uh, are like some of them are in that category. So we should link to those in the show notes. Cool. All right, we'll do that. <laughs> um, Great. So let's move on to some other research that you've been working on. So you've been thinking about ways that our advice to readers could be improved. And yeah, so what are some of the areas where you think there might be the most room for improvement in 80,000 hours of advice? Yeah. So uh, the last few months I've been trying to think about just like very big picture, what might be the mistakes in our advice or things we're getting wrong. And I think like the previous topic could be in that category, like maybe we should focus a bit more on broad long-termism, maybe a bit more on patient long-termism. But yeah, another one which we kind of were just getting onto is how to trade off transferable versus specialist career capital. And yeah, I think what you think about that trade-off can have a really big effect on which careers seem best. Because if you think like transferable career capital is where it's at, then you should be focusing on just getting like very general skills like management, Maybe you should just be really focusing on like just being successful at something because it seems like being successful gives you lots of options in the future. Like it helps you get cool achievements and it helps you meet other high achieving people. And often people who've done something impressive in a field can have lots of options in the future. Or it could mean things like becoming a journalist or maybe working in policy because these are kind of platforms that let you support many different issues in the future. And so, yeah, that if, if, if that approach is correct, then maybe our advice would be more just like, okay, just go and become really good at something. And that would be like the key message. Whereas if we think specialist career capital is correct, then instead we should be trying to think, well, what are these like highest impact things over the next couple of decades? And, and then we should be trying to take bets on building career capital that's really relevant for those. So maybe if we say think like AI technical safety is a really important priority over the next few decades, then maybe you want to go and like study machine learning and get skills that are really useful in that particular path. So is the main thing that makes the difference between these two views or, or you know, places to emphasize how uncertain you are about what kinds of work is actually going to be most valuable in, say, 20 years? Yeah, so I think one really big dimension is just how uncertain you are about the priorities, which could be priorities about which problems are most pressing, 
And remember, again, this is like priorities over the next couple of decades because that's the kind of planning horizon for careers. So that does seem pretty uncertain, like what will be the top priority in 20 or 30 years? But it could also be uncertainty about your own preferences and personal, well, some types of transferable career capital. If you are very uncertain about like what types of organizations you want to work in, then again, that might make you want to just get a transferable skill set, which you could then use in many different organizations in the future. Okay, so that would exclude transferable career capital as just like become extremely good at one narrow thing. That can be used in many ways. That can be used ways. in many yeah. ways because that's still like... You're still focused on a particular skill set. Right. But like you might study management or something like that. Yes. Okay. Okay. Is there anything else that sort of influences how much you should focus on specialist versus transferable career capital besides uncertainty about what kind of work is most important and your own sort of preferences? Yes. So I think the other big side of the equation is just kind of how easy it is to get both of these forms of career capital. So like one way of thinking about it is suppose you get the transferable career capital and then in 20 years, there's two possibilities. One is that like the best guess of which priorities were most pressing that you had now is actually correct. And so then you use that transferable career capital to work on those. Or there's a new cause that's arrived, which we sometimes call cause X. And then you like use that transferable career capital to work on that cause in 20 years time. And then we then want to contrast that with instead you could have just betted on whichever priorities seem most pressing now. And then you've built specialist career capital relevant to those priorities. So then the question is like, if you did the specialist path, how much of a better position are you in to Mm. work on the priorities compared to if you'd done the transferable route, if it's still the same priorities, or we've got the other scenario where it's cause X, in which case your specialist career capital is presumably less useful than having the transferable career capital. So like you kind of want to think about what's the the delta in these two different scenarios between the two different things you could have done, which I now has realized is like really hard to follow. (laughs) (laughs) Well, okay, let me try to let me try to summarize it. Something like so like you want to know two things. One, how because maybe I'm just going to put it in an even more confusing way. (laughs) How transferable is specialist career capital? So like, you know, if it turns out that you're wrong about what the best kind of work is for you, how much can you still make that transition because you became an amazing machine learning researcher? Or like even just a somewhat good machine learning researcher. And then the other question is how useful for the things that you like would be your best guess are the most. It's the transferable career capital. Yeah, is the the transferable career capital. Yes. Mm -hmm. Also, another thing is how good is cause X compared to those other priorities in the future? Like a new cause X could arrive, but maybe it's only a little bit better, in which case it doesn't really matter if you can't switch into it. And by better, of course, we kind of mean worse because oftentimes causes are like... (laughs) are like bad things in the world that need fixing. So, yes, but like, but so we mean how pressing it is. Yeah. yeah. How much better it is to work on this, to work on How much on more causes. value you have per like year of work on the course. Okay. Yeah. Great. So have your views shifted at all on those questions over the um, years? Well, so I, I mainly see this as just a big uncertainty because I still feel pretty unsure about in general, whether people should prefer specialist or transferable career capital And it also has a big effect on what our recommendations should be. Yeah. Where like, yeah, the specialist one would be kind of like, well, there's these priority paths, just do those. And the transferable one would be like, just be successful at something generally impressive or generally useful. And that seems like two pretty different emphases. So on that, for the second one, that could also mean, just to clarify, it could mean just do whatever you're like most passionate about or something or best at. Um, Yeah. I mean, I would focus on best at rather than passion, but passion is relevant insofar as it's making you more likely to do well at something. Right. Okay. 
So I guess some of this uncertainty is on the user's side, right? Because some of it is about like what they in fact will be good at or something. And then some of the uncertainty is on our side. Of course, I mean, we want our users to also help us think through these things in some ways or like do some thinking for themselves, but like questions about how likely is it really that AI presents a big existential risk? Yes, totally. And yeah, maybe in, in terms of what people should do, I kind of think either of these two strategies can make sense. And a lot of it will come down to the particular opportunities that are open to you and how good a fit you seem for them. Yeah. Um, and or so, if they like disagree with us, like if they think like, oh, they're wrong about these things being the most important issues to work on, they might decide to go a more transferable route. Yeah. Or maybe they should take the specialist route, focus on whatever they think the priorities are. Yeah. Right. Okay. So yeah. What else is there to say about specialist versus transferable career capital? Yeah, I guess just kind of now more me like guessing which one seems best. It does seem like a lot of the highest impact routes, you do need to get some specialist career capital eventually. And there seems to be pretty big gains from that. So I, it is definitely worth considering specializing. Though one thing is if you're like unsure between the two, or like if you need to, if you need to get some transferable career capital and some specialist career capital, you should do the transferable one first because then you can still switch. Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, so there, there is a kind of... options open. Yeah. But I mean, so in general, there's a kind of uncertainty pushes towards transferable. And presumably so, yeah. we're going to be less... I mean, everyone will be a bit less uncertain in the future if we like are doing a good job at trying to figure things well, out. Well, yeah. Then yeah, then you're just really getting into the kind of almost the general like patience versus urgency debate. Oh, interesting. Okay. Um, yeah. So I guess that's, yeah. that's one way that these two debates are linked. Yes. Another, I think another interesting framing is what would be best from a community perspective. And if we think in 10 years, what do we want effective altruism to look like? Having like 10,000 McKinsey consultants doesn't seem as useful as having like 10,000 experts in loads of different potentially interesting areas. Like we definitely want a bunch of specialists. To be like a bit more serious, we would want some of both. But yeah, I think thinking about it from a community perspective makes it like more attractive to have people like bet on lots of different interesting, potentially relevant things. Right. So does it seem accurate to say that we seem pretty pro-specialist career capital in our content? So like we could be making a mistake by being as pro-specialist career capital as we are? Yeah, most of the, the priority paths are kind of pretty on the specialist end of the spectrum. And so I could imagine maybe we should put a bit more emphasis on the transferable career capital. Though, yeah, maybe just worth clarifying kind of as I did in the, my Key Ideas podcast like I think when people think of transferable career capital, the first thing that comes to mind is something like consulting. But actually, it could be something much more like just going to become like a great civil servant because civil servants can work on many different problems in the future. Or we, we mentioned the example of a journalist earlier as like someone who actually has very transferable career capital with respect to causes. And so it, it's like those kinds of things I like most excited about. Yeah, I wonder if, if you're really unsure about the transferable versus specialist trade-off. Maybe there are some kinds of career capital that seem to be both pretty good for if you are pretty sure that one problem is, you know, the thing that you want to be working on, but also more transferable than some other kinds of career capital. Yeah, I mean, I guess one one big thing is like if you can focus on something specialist, but you have good backup options, then you're doing something that's pretty good on both both ends of the spectrum. And I think a lot of our priority paths do have good backup options, which is like one reason why we haven't been as worried about recommending them despite a lot of uncertainty about which causes are going to be best in the future. That makes sense. Also in, in our kind of, we now released this like longer list of other interesting career paths. And a lot of them are these slightly more transferable things. Th those are now on the key ideas page as well. Cool. 
Okay, so are there any other areas where you worry that maybe 80,000 hours could be getting the balance wrong or, you know, places where you think we're most likely to be mistaken? Yeah, I think there's a broad category of things around one way you could see it is like how much weight to put on personal fit. And so something I worry about. Can you uh, just define personal fit for us? Yeah, loosely personal fit is just how good you expect you'll be at a certain career path. But often we're like particularly interested in what's the chance of having like a really outsized success in a particular path. And that's compared to other people in the path, right? Yeah, if you want to get like more formal about it. Yeah, or like the, the, the average person. So yeah, something I would worry about is like, well, we're making these particular lists of career paths and global problems quite salient to people. And so I worry about someone who like goes into one of those things and then becomes pretty good, but not amazing when they could have been amazing at some like other thing that we haven't listed. Or maybe just one of our kind of lower priority, like things that we think are just like on average a bit less pressing, but would have actually been like an amazing option for this particular person. So is the worry then that because we aren't emphasizing, you know, thinking about where you in particular, like our readers in particular can excel enough, they like will end up doing something that they excel less at. And then in fact, that's actually worse for the world because they would have had more impact doing something they were much better at, even if it was a less pressing area in general. Yeah. So like, for instance... You know, we tend to slightly push people towards studying economics because like all our sequel, having an economics PhD is like really good for global priorities research and policy and like a bunch of other things we're interested in. But then you could kind of imagine someone who like stretches to do economics and they just about succeed. But actually they would have just been like amazing at psychology because just their skills slightly matched it more or they would have turned out more interested in it. And we don't emphasize like psychology quite as much as economics. And it would be better to have someone who's a kind of like right at the top of psychology and do something really innovative and interesting compared to someone who's kind of like a bit above average, but not amazing at economics. Yeah. So I guess it's all kind of a matter of degree, right? Because like if somebody was just a little bit more above average in psychology versus a bit above average in economics, we might still think it's better to do the economics. And it's like, just depends on how much better you're going to be in that other path. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, I mean, I might have just answered the question I'm going to ask, but (laughs) so why can't we just emphasize personal fit more in the content and solve this problem? Yeah, well, so we do try to emphasize it quite a bit, but just because the particular lists of things we say are so much more concrete and salient, it's very easy to focus on those too much and not think about enough like your individual circumstances. And yeah, we're trying, we're going to try and add more content to the Key Ideas series and the website about how to think through your individual situation to try and help with this problem. But you can kind of imagine normal careers advice is like kind of the opposite to us where it would just start with like, okay, what are your strengths? That would be like the number one question. And then, well, then they wouldn't, they wouldn't, that would be it actually. (laughs) But then like with us, we, we kind of start from like, well, what does the world most need? Because I think that's like a, really neglected perspective and also like well if you want to have a big impact it's really important to be actually thinking about like what will actually help people and then we kind of work back from there and think now how can my strengths fit into that so we do cover both ends of the spectrum but we tend to emphasize what the world most needs more yeah i wonder if in fact it's fine because maybe people are like more naturally inclined to think in terms of their personal circumstances and what they're good at because you know they've been being told since they were 11 that that's the way to choose your career and emphasizing what the world needs even more than is like actually, you know, justified if all else is equal is like maybe a good corrective. Yeah, that's how I mainly feel about it. But I guess I I worry that, I mean, people who are like really into 80,000 hours and then maybe kind of like hear the perspective too much. Yeah. But yeah, like hopefully that's not like the typical reader, but. Hopefully the typical reader isn't into <laughs> us very much. 
<laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's, I mean, it's in general, this is like a very difficult challenge of writing for multiple audiences. Yeah. And tends to be people who've been like listening for a long time need to hear like pretty different things from what a new person would ideally hear. Okay, so maybe we're not emphasizing personal fit enough. Is there anything that you would recommend to readers to either read of ours or of somebody else's or to do that would help them think better about their personal fit? Yeah, well, one answer is I'm working on a like how to plan your career process, which we're going to put onto the website. And then the aim of that would be to kind of actually lead you through everything you need to think about, including your personal fit. And so hopefully if you work through that process, it will mean you've significantly thought about personal fit. Another thing is just whenever you're making a career decision, obviously do consider personal fit and bear in mind that it could outweigh which things seem most pressing in general. It could easily be that it's better to do something that you're good at, especially if you're focused on this more like transferable career capital focused thing that we were just talking about. And then, yeah, I mean, a third thing is like, I think it is worth people at some point reflecting on their strengths and trying to really clarify what they are. And yeah, there's a lot that could be said about how to figure out what your strengths are. And also just how to predict what you're going to be good at. That's like a whole difficult question in forecasting. But uh, one perspective that I think gets a little bit neglected, even in like the mainstream talking about what, what your strengths are and what you're going to be good at, is not only thinking about kind of broad strokes, the, the area, like what might be a good fit, but also really thinking about the nitty gritty day to day of the particular jobs. And yeah, trying to build up a picture of what does this job actually involve day to day and could I see myself doing that and being motivated in it? And yeah, one one exercise I found personally useful, it's got like a slightly cheesy name of the energy audit. But basically what you do is you look at the last two weeks in your calendar and then you try and categorize things by like energizing or not energizing. And then you try and think about how can you do the energizing ones more often. And you can use that within your role to kind of try to like design your role a bit better. But you can also use that to try to understand what actually are your strengths, like what are the types of activities, people to work with, skills that you find like most energizing, which is often a good sign of something that you might have good fit with. I guess the other thing to say here is that oftentimes people can try the work or at least talk to somebody in the in the domain so that they can get a better sense of this day-to-day and a better sense of their fit with it. And I mean, this is a lot more applicable when people are early in their careers and they can spend a summer doing an internship. And this is, of course, common sense, but it's one, it's one thing to maybe to emphasize. Yeah, there's a whole, we could have a huge discussion about what are the best ways to predict personal fit. And one perspective is trying to predict it from the armchair. And then you've got a whole question of forecasting and like which predictors are most powerful. And then another perspective is how can you get more information and test things out and learn about them? And I think often people focus quite a bit on the armchair stuff. And often just by going to talk to someone in the career, you can learn like so much that's obviously really useful that that's like a really good use of time. Yeah. So I just I just listened to How to Measure Anything by Douglas Hubbard. And, you know, one thing he hammers home is the more uncertain you are, the actually easier it is to reduce your uncertainty. Like if you know, like practically nothing about yeah. an area, just talking to somebody for half an hour is probably going to like be a huge deal for making you understand what that path is like. So, yeah, people who feel super uncertain. In <laughs> fact, it's like be hopeful because it's easier to reduce your uncertainty. Yeah, totally. And we have this article on the site called How to Make a Career Decision. And then that tries to lead you through a process where you like first try and assess things a bit from the armchair, then you identify your key uncertainties. And then it asks, how can you actually go and figure out these uncertainties in the world? And we have this like thing called the ladder of ladder of tests, where it's like, you can start with really easy ways to get more information and then do like more and more costly things where like an internship would be a relatively big commitment. But 
could still be really worth it if it lets you test out a whole career path. Okay, so before we wrap up here, any other ways we might be wrong that listeners should be aware of? Yeah, I mean, maybe in a way, the most obvious one is just the list of problems and career paths that we highlight the most could just be the wrong ones. Are there any that you're particularly worried about? Um, Well, I mean, just kind of thinking about it big picture, one thing would just be like, maybe we're wrong about long-termism, just because that is like a very new philosophy and there's still a lot to be figured out about it. Then you can try to ask, well, if we were wrong about long-termism, what would we recommend instead and how different would it be? Which I think is like a really interesting question. So there's kind of alternatives to long-termism. Like one alternative to long-termism is like currently called near-termism, which you can you can kind of think of as like, well, what are just some like kind of common sense ways we can like help people in a really high return way today? And people there tend to focus on helping the world's poorest people, like especially through global health. Or if they think animal suffering is a pressing priority, then they might work on reducing factory farming. But then, yeah, I'm not sure if I would end up being a near-termist if I projected long-termism. Another framework might be like kind of the conventional economics framework, Hmm. which is like maybe not a very catchy title, but I think it's pretty different from near-termism because like economists will think of benefits and costs over hundreds of years, but they're just discounting them quite highly. So then they kind of end up being like medium-termists. And yeah, I could imagine becoming a medium-termist and then I don't know what I would work on then, but I could imagine easily ending up working on something like climate change or, I mean, maybe even still like pandemic reduction and bio-risks. I could imagine that still turning out to be a top priority from medium term perspective. Yeah. So maybe some of our recommendations are like a bit more robust to this to this choice. Yeah. And I, and I should have also mentioned like AI alignment. I could easily imagine that also seeming like one of the top things from a medium term perspective, either because there could be a big risk from it or because maybe you just want to like maybe the medium termists end up trying to speed up progress and like do economic growth. That's kind of like Tyler Cowen, I kind of think of as a medium termist sometimes. Yeah, interesting. Okay, so there's the period of time termist um, <laughs> sort of choice point. Yeah, and, and and those are not like great terminologies because I think most near termists, what actually makes near termism distinctive is not really about when you think it's good to help people. Like most me- near termists agree that future generations matter. What's actually making the difference is something more about what methodology they think is best. And so like they might say want to put more weight on like things that seem common sense good as opposed to like more speculative priorities. Or like they want to do things where they can get feedback about how well it worked. And then one thing about long-termism is like, well, if I'm really trying to make a difference in the next thousand, a thousand years from now, if that's my main priority, it's pretty hard to get feedback. And they might think you're just likely to go so wrong doing that, that better to focus on the here and now. Yes. So I, I hope there will be a different name for these different philosophies at some point. Yeah, so I guess like we could probably talk forever about like, okay, let's go through all of the problems and paths and decide how uncertain we are that they are in fact as good as as our best guess is at the moment. So we probably shouldn't do that now. But yeah, is there anything else you want to leave listeners with about where your uncertainties lie about these recommendations? Well, and then while we've already covered a bunch, which is like supposing long-termism is correct, then we've got these like different varieties of long-termism and how much emphasis to put on each one. Yeah, that would right. be another area. So if patient long-termism is correct, we probably would recommend somewhat different things. Yes. Or well, yeah, we shouldn't think of it as correct, but if it's kind of the main thing we should focus on, then... What would... do you mean we shouldn't think <laughs> of it as correct? If it's... Well, it's... The, the things are really a matter of degree. Like, 
even the people who are most into patients still think we should spend some on object level things today. It's just maybe they would only give like half a percent of the portfolio as opposed to 4%. I see. I feel like the most natural way for me to think about it is like if patient long-termism is correct, then it says you should like only, you should spend a tiny bit per year now, I guess to like keep things That's, keep things running yeah. or something until the- Well, and to get information and like because of diminishing returns and yeah. Wait, sorry, what diminishing returns? If there's like some diminishing re- returns each year- then you'll want to like give a little bit each year. Right. But why would a patient long-termist think they were diminishing returns each year? Well, so yeah, the patient long-termist, they might still think, think there's like a small number of really good things around now. Okay. Um, and so they might, they'd still want to take those, but then. They want to yeah. save a decent amount. Okay. So I think okay. just thinking the spectrums is like kind of more accurate in most cases. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I see um, what you're saying. Um. Okay. And, cool. and yeah, I mean, then we could also get into the whole discussion of just like, if we're uncertain about all these views, we should probably take some kind of portfolio approach as well. And, but I, I suppose you were saying, like, suppose we just knew perfectly, like, what the situation was. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess when it comes to just how highly should we be recommending people work on certain issues or take certain career paths, that's something that we're just continually working on and trying to figure out. Yeah, totally. And there's just like, there's a lot of other career paths that we haven't looked into yet. And there's a lot more research we'd like to do. So, the idea that we'll discover more paths that we think are really promising or like downweight some of our existing ones seems fairly likely. Yeah, I know Ben Garfinkel was recently on the podcast and, you know, articulating some reasons to think maybe AI safety was a bit less pressing than some people had thought. And yeah, it's something we're thinking about, although it's worth saying that he still thinks it's a big deal. Yeah, yeah. And we still think it's one of the most interesting areas to focus on. Cool. All right. Well, thank you, Ben. Cool, thanks. All right, that's the first piece in a series of chats that we'll be releasing between Ben and Arden over the coming weeks and months. If you'd like some further reading on these topics, uh, there's two things that Arden's published recently. Uh, The first one is Ideas for High-Impact Careers Beyond Our Priority Paths, uh, and the second is Global Issues Beyond 80,000 Hours Current Priorities. Ben also recently published a related blog post called The Emerging School of Patient Long-Termism. And if you'd like to go deeper on patient long-termism, I suggest listening to Phil Trammell's episode on that topic, uh, which is interview number 73. As usual, we'll link to all of those in the show notes. Also, here's just a final reminder that our annual user survey is open for submissions for now. You can find that survey at 80,000hours.org slash survey. The 80,000 Hours podcast is produced by Kieran Harris, audio mastering by Ben Cordell. Full transcripts are available on our website and made by Zaki Ulhak. Thanks for joining. Talk to you again soon.